This is the Mathematics Education Podcast from MathEdPodcast.com. Welcome to the Math Ed Podcast. My name is Sam Otten from the University of Missouri, and today I am joined by two guests from Utah State University. Patricia Moyer-Packenham is a full professor of mathematics education. Thanks, Patricia, for being here. Thank you, Sam. And Arla Westensko is director of the Tutoring Intervention and Mathematics Enrichment Clinic, also at Utah State. Arla, thanks for being here as well. Thank you. We're going to be talking about Patricia and Arla's article, which is printed in the International Journal of Virtual and Personal Learning Environments in Volume 4. That article is entitled, Effects of Virtual Manipulatives on Student Achievement and Mathematics Learning. Um, But before we get to that article, I actually wanted to ask Patricia and Arla to tell us about their graduate school experiences. So this is Patricia, and um, I earned my Ph.D. at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, And my dissertation was about teachers' uses of math manipulatives in middle schools. And I interviewed and observed teachers and and looked at how they were using manipulatives in their classrooms. And from my dissertation, I published an article titled, Are We Having Fun Yet? How Teachers Use Manipulatives to Teach Mathematics. And that's actually become one of my most uh, frequently cited publications currently with over 200 citations. So that work starting at my dissertation on manipulatives um, has really influenced me and and this article that we wrote together. Mm -hmm. And that was physical manipulatives themselves, right? Yes, that was um, teachers using physical manipulatives in their middle school classrooms. Okay, great. And Arla? I earned my doctorate two years ago here at Utah State, and my advisor was Dr. Moore Packenham. I was very lucky in that. Uh, my dissertation combined my two main interests of technology and intervention emerged in part from our work that we did with this meta-analysis. What I did was I examined the equivalent fraction learning differences of which are related to the type of manipulative use with students with learning disorders. Okay, so you kind of came to math education with some interest in manipulatives and technology and some of these issues. Um, what is it that brought both of you to then virtual manipulatives in particular? Well, for me, I had a career university change in the year uh, 2000 and um, went from the University of Alabama to George Mason University. And um, there was a senior colleague named Mark Spikel, and he was working with a computer programmer at that time to create some of the first virtual manipulatives. So that introduced me to this idea that manipulatives could move into a digital environment. And so that was in 2000. And about the same time, in 1999, folks at Utah State University created and launched the National Library of Virtual Manipulatives. And so as I read and saw what was being written in the literature about virtual manipulatives, and I saw this term virtual manipulatives, just from my own background with physical manipulatives, I saw that people were using the term to describe kind of everything that was digital, even things that looked like a worksheet on the computer, Hmm. but were a picture of an object they were calling a virtual manipulative. And so in 2002, that's when I wrote the article, What Are Virtual Manipulatives?, to try to distinguish from this idea of static images that people were calling virtual manipulatives 
and things that were interactive and dynamic, which is how I defined a virtual manipulative. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I would agree with you that there needs to be some kind of manipulation uh, happening for it to, you know, sort of fall under the term virtual manipulative versus a worksheet, which to me is definitely something different. Exactly. So that piece about the interactivity and the object being dynamic was really a critical core to that definition. And, and you know, that was something that I felt we needed to establish in the literature that when we're talking about virtual manipulatives, we're not talking about basic, you know, fact response types of programs or looking at a worksheet and, and filling in numbers. Those types of tools have um, one place and one function, but they're not really defined as a virtual manipulative. Mm-hmm. So in your article in the International Journal of Virtual and Personal Learning Environments, you really took on the task of doing a meta-analysis of research on virtual manipulatives. So why did you feel like that meta-analysis of virtual manipulatives was needed at this time? In my um, graduate work with Dr. Moira Packenham, I read a lot of virtual manipulative articles. And there were a lot of comparison studies, and there were studies describing students' learning. And what I found was it was very difficult to bring all of them together to get a big picture of what was being reported and try and determine what the next research steps should be. So I had the impression that the field had kind of reached a point where some sort of summarization was needed in order to move the research forward. And so when I shared my feelings with Dr. Moore Packenham, she expressed that she had also been thinking about this. And from there, we began to start this massive project of summarization of the material that was out there. Well, we're we're definitely, as a field, very thankful that you did take on this effort because there's a lot of research out there of um, varying designs, varying findings. Um, So I was wondering, though, for those of us that aren't completely familiar with and maybe haven't done as much reading as the two of you had, can you help us get a sense of the scope of research that existed on virtual manipulatives? Well, just as you said, Sam, there, there really are a variety of studies. There are a variety of designs. One of the things that we saw in the literature was that there were studies being conducted on a lot of different mathematical topics. They were different lengths of treatments of using virtual manipulatives. They were at at different grade levels. And we wanted to understand just, you know, overall what impact or, um, you know, what effects we could see across all of those studies. We wanted to be really inclusive in putting together this meta-analysis. And so you'll see that in this paper, the first part of the meta-analysis really focuses on trying to understand those comparison studies where we have effect sizes. So, of course, we see geometry and fractions and number and operations as being a very common topic to study, whereas other mathematical domains are not as common. We also saw that there were more studies being conducted in the earlier grades, uh, whereas high school and university level studies um, were not as common. The other part that we wanted to make sure that we included in this meta-analysis was a part that not only looked at comparison studies, but that looked at how the manipulatives were being used, what specific affordances were impacting or influencing student learning, and how that was being described by researchers in those studies. And so 
some of what's in this meta-analysis looks at those effect size comparisons, but other aspects of the meta-analysis really dig into those specific affordances to try to understand what was um, influencing the student learning. Mm -hmm. I'm speaking with Patricia Moyer-Packenham and Arla Weston-Sko from Utah State University about their article, Effects of Virtual Manipulatives on Student Achievement and Mathematics Learning. So looking at that wide range of research, uh, what did you actually find in terms of the relationship between the virtual manipulatives and student achievement in mathematics? We actually found over 150 virtual manipulative articles. 66 of these were studies that met our inclusion, our criteria for inclusion. From that, we obtained 82 effect size comparisons. And the first comparison that we made was using virtual manipulatives compared to all instructional types. This analysis resulted in a moderate effect size favoring virtual manipulatives. Then we aggregated the effect sizes into instructional groups, and the results of 38 comparisons yielded a small effect size when virtual manipulative instruction was compared with physical manipulative instruction. And the results of 18 comparisons yielded a large moderate effect size when compared to classroom instruction using textbooks. There were 26 combinations, comparisons also, in which they compared both the use of physical and virtual manipulatives together when compared with other types of instruction. And these results yielded a, a moderate effect size when compared to virtual manipulatives when they were used alone, a small effect size when compared to physical manipulatives used alone, and a moderate effect size when compared to classroom instruction using textbooks. We then um, aggregated the data, the effect size comparisons into types of mathematical domain, and the results yielded a moderate effect favoring virtual manipulatives when compared with other types of instruction for the domains of fractions, numbers and operations, geometry, and measurement. Our analysis yielded small effect sizes favoring virtual manipulatives for the domains of integers and algebra. So then our third type of analysis that we used was by grade level. And the first three grade levels, preschool and kindergarten, first and second and third and fourth, all yielded moderate effect sizes, favoring virtual manipulatives when compared with other types of instruction. The fifth and sixth grade comparison yielded a small effect size favoring virtual manipulatives. There were only five seventh to eighth grade comparisons, and that yielded a small effect size favoring other types of instruction when compared with virtual manipulatives. There were three 9th through 11th grade comparisons, and they yielded a large to moderate effect size favoring virtual manipulatives, and then there were two at the university level, which also yielded a large effect size favoring virtual manipulatives again when compared with other types of instruction. Our final analysis, we aggregated the effect size comparisons by the duration of the treatment. And in this one-day comparisons yielded no effect. The treatment of three to five-day comparisons yielded a smallest effect size favoring virtual manipulatives. And the treatment of two days, six to 10 days, and 10 days and more all yielded moderate effects favoring virtual manipulatives when compared with other instructional types of treatment. In the studies that we looked at, 31 or almost half of those studies were for the duration of more than 10 days. So that was the big bulk of our comparisons. 
Okay, so I encourage listeners to actually go to the article um, where they can get the specific numbers that go along with these moderate and small and various effect sizes. But for me, you know, listening to it and looking at the article, I mean, one big takeaway is that there are effects, first of all, and that they basically are always favoring virtual manipulatives. It's just there is a different range of sort of sizes. Is that a fair characterization? I mean, you were mentioning a lot of effects, so it's there does seem to be something going on there in those comparative studies. Yeah, I think that sums it up very well. It's also interesting to note that there wasn't large effect sizes between virtual manipulatives and physical manipulatives. They usually came out to be pretty small effect sizes. Yeah, that's interesting kind of thinking about that comparison versus the comparison to sort of just general non-manipulative instruction or just instruction as usual. And the fact there there was basically an absence of large effect sizes, but as we know in education research, it's pretty hard to find large effect sizes for anything, right? Yeah, that's very true. You mentioned that the other thing you were really interested in looking at with this meta-analysis was going behind those relationships and saying what was really what are some of the possible explanations behind those effect sizes? And so to do this, you had some of your own thoughts about what were the affordances of virtual manipulatives or what are the characteristics that contribute to the effects? And you also looked at, I believe, the authors of the studies that you were reviewing. You looked at what they put forward as their explanation for the effects. So with respect to that research question, what were some of your findings? Um, So in that particular part of the analysis, it was really important to us to try to come up with a way to characterize this thematic analysis of common um, attributes of the virtual manipulatives that different researchers were describing. So when um, a researcher would describe a particular manipulative having a focusing effect or having a linking effect, we wanted to try to characterize that according to some big ideas. And we came up with five major affordances as our big ideas across all of the studies that different researchers were reporting. And those affordances were focused constraint, creative variation, simultaneous linking, efficient precision, and motivation. So just quickly to summarize each of those, this idea of focused constraint was when researchers reported these constraining features of the manipulatives or focusing features of the manipulatives that brought a level of awareness for the student to the mathematics that was in the tool. The second one, creative variation, was when researchers reported that students actually had opportunities to generate their own representations or um, have an opportunity to create something or, or prompting them to experiment with the manipulatives. The third affordance, simultaneous linking, was this idea of different types of linking features in the virtual manipulatives. And so researchers talked about linking two objects, or they talked about linking objects with symbols, or they talked about linking the student's movement of the computer mouse with the motion of the dynamic objects. So that idea of linking the objects and and the student actions simultaneously. The fourth element that we um, saw researchers talking about was this idea of efficient precision. And so manipulatives having this idea of really being faithful to mathematical properties, really providing a precise mathematical 
example, sometimes researchers compare this to a drawing or physical objects not having that same level of precision or efficiency. And then finally, the last aspect that we saw as a major affordance was this idea of motivational aspects in the tools. So sometimes students are, are impacted through a motivational um, response that's affective because the manipulatives are enjoyable or they provide a, an interest aspect where they maintain students' attention or they um, encourage persistence and engagement. So all of these different affordances were described with examples of evidence in different researchers' articles. And we put them together in, in sort of this thematic idea of five major affordances. One of the things I think that's interesting about some of these affordances is that they might seem to be almost in conflict with each other. For example, if one virtual manipulative is very focusing or constraining and another uh, aspect or affordance allows this creative variation, you might think, well, focusing is kind of the opposite of allowing, you know, creativity and variation. But in some of the tools, those aspects working together really seem to have an impact on student learning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. They, you know, on the surface seem kind of contradictory, but when you think about it, it could be a space in which to create, but in a certain area or create around a certain mathematical idea. So in that sense, it's focused on the mathematical idea, but it allows the student to sort of explore it and, and create within that. The other thing that we saw in some of those articles, particularly with different um, learners and in, in some of our other projects as well, is that some of these affordances when they're in a virtual manipulative might support different types of learners. For example, for a more advanced learner, um, having that creative variation and ability to generate their own representations might be something that keeps them very interested um, in the mathematics, whereas the focusing and constraining features for a less advanced learner, those features that sort of walk them through and really focus their attention on the mathematics that they're, you know, to be attending to, to be learning in that particular tool might help to support and focus their attention as they're using the tool. Mm -hmm. So that and that kind of suggests that another area that more research might be needed is the sort of relationship of virtual manipulatives to different student populations. In the article, you do lay out some next steps for the field. One of the nice contributions of a meta-analysis is that it can lay this foundation on which future work can build. Um, so I was wondering if the two of you had particular next steps that you're already taking or that you're planning to take building on this article. We have done a couple of uh, studies that have started to address some of the things that um, we noticed about the meta-analysis um, that we summarized. One of the things that we suggested for future research was to look at how different groups of students might be influenced by using virtual manipulatives to learn mathematics. And we recently published um, an article that we conducted in 17 classrooms where we were looking at a variety of demographic predictors of student performance. Um, there we had students who were randomly assigned within classrooms to either a virtual manipulative group or uh, a regular classroom instruction group with physical manipulatives. And one of the things that we found in that study of the 17 classrooms 
was that the third and fourth graders who participated in the study, essentially there was this equalizing effect where there were less or no predictor variables that predicted students' performance when they were in a virtual manipulative classroom versus the, the children who were in the regular classroom. Predictors like their socioeconomic status, their English language learner status, predicted how well they actually did on the assessments. Um, and that didn't happen for the students using the virtual manipulatives. So that was one of the things that we did following this meta-analysis. Um, another suggestion that we made was that there be research reporting which applets could be used effectively to introduce, explore, or to practice concepts. And so a part of this was I did used in my dissertation where I looked at the learning of equivalent fractions for students with learning disabilities. And what I did was I identified 14 subconcepts of equivalent fraction learning and compared the use of virtual and physical manipulatives for each of these subconcepts. Uh, and it was very interesting because there came out to be some real differences between the subconcepts. There were six of them which really favored the use of the physical manipulatives, and then there were five that favored the use of the virtual manipulatives, and two that favored a uh, a combining of those two. And then I looked at the affordances of the two manipulatives, the physical and virtual manipulatives, and from some of the five concepts that we identified, I used those in analyzing why uh, these two different manipulatives affected the students' learning differently. So um, another uh, example of something that we've done sort of based on the meta-analysis and based on some of the things I was envisioning when when we wrote that original what our virtual manipulatives paper was the idea that manipulatives would be um, actually manipulated in different ways with new technologies. And so we recently finished conducting a study with over a hundred children using uh, virtual manipulative apps on iPads. And so we worked with children ages three to eight in that project. We interviewed each, the, each of the students in one-on-one in -on -one interviews, and we're currently in the process of looking at some you know, in-depth video analyses of children's learning progressions, what types of affordances in the apps either supported or hindered students' learning. So I think you know, moving into different kinds of technologies and ways of interacting with the virtual manipulatives is probably you know, the, that kind of work that's on the horizon of this field. So the meta-analysis looks at a lot of past work that's been done, but there's a lot still to be done, and uh, we appreciate the work that you're putting in uh, in this area of research, which of course is very relevant to the 21st century and things that are going on currently in math education. Before I let you go from this episode, however, I have one more question that I ask my guests. A little bit of a fun question. If you can imagine a world in which you were not actually in a career as a mathematics education researcher, what would you see yourself doing? And Patricia, we can start with you. Okay, so, um, well, I always um, used to sort of joke around that, you know, I would get my PhD and then, you know, do that for a while. And, and then when I, you know, wasn't interested in research anymore, then I would go back to law school and get a law degree. You know, I've since found that once, once I finished my PhD, probably going back to law school would probably be a little too much to do. And so, um, 
But I, but I always thought about law as gathering evidence, constructing logical arguments, which is kind of what you do as a researcher. So I think um, my, my other career choice was going to be doing something, you know, with the law. But I, I think I found that I'm pretty happy in math education doing, doing what I'm doing. So I never, never quite got back to law school. And once you get into research, it's hard to get out because, as we see, you do a study and then that leads to several more questions that you want to follow up on. Exactly. It's, it's all been quite connected for me for the last 17 years. <laughs> and Arla? Well, I have a great love of nature and animals. And even when I'm living in the city, I think of myself as a country kid. So if I hadn't gone into education, I probably would have followed my other dream, which was owning a ranch, a ranch where I connected children with special needs and animals. And so I probably would be out working on the ranch, riding horses, training dogs, and working with kids. Oh, wow. I grew up on a cattle farm, but we never had horses. My parents both had horses on their farms that they grew up on, but never got to be around the horses, which I think would be great. Yeah, I loved it. I was with them a lot when I was a child. Mm-hmm. I've been speaking with Patricia Moyer-Packenham and Arla Weston-Sko from Utah State University. Thank you so much for speaking with us about your work. Thank, Thank you, Sam. Thank you for listening to this episode of the MathEd Podcast. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, please use the PayPal donation button at mathedpodcast.com.